0: Stop bullying and shouting at the
1: lower orders. No! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again!
0: This is Shot and Shield. Shot and Shield listening in memphis tennessee reit Vic sweden and sunshine west australia this is the shot and shield supercast a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history a program meant to be heard while you are painting your miniatures and building your terrain i am your host the grand duke scott from the duchy of florida
1: we are being terrorized by deputies armed with daggers and these madmen have outlawed themselves for their attempt on the liberty of this country. They're trying to kill me! They're trying to kill him! I, I will kill my brother if he betrays the freedom of the French people. Get him out of here. <laughs>
0: Now, before I get into this episode, I want to do a little housekeeping. If you listen to Shot and Shield on Google Podcast, make note that Google Podcast is going away. And if you use Google at all, then you'll have to find Shot and Shield on YouTube Music. Just know that you'll be able to listen on YouTube Music, but won't be able to download every episode. Some of them you will, some of them you won't. Now, you will still be able to listen to Shot and Shield on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and most everywhere, uh, any podcast app that's going on, I think I got us on. So I think we're good there. I'm also working to continue putting Shot and Shield episodes on the YouTube channel itself, uh, but that requires a lot of waiting and transfers and moving audio to video, and it takes time, and and time is tough. (sighs) Technology killing me. Anyhow, in this episode, I will be reviewing Ridley Scott's Napoleon, uh, also presenting you with a cool little vintage radio program I found called Ports of Call from 1936 about Egypt. But first, it's email time.
1: Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington, D.C. calling, Peking
0: calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. You can email me at shotandshield at gmail.com, and I will try to either address your question or email you directly. Uh, Our first email today is from Dusty in Ohio, listening on Spotify. And Dusty writes, Scott, greetings from West Ohio. I noticed that you have stopped posting pictures of your Russian colonials and started talking about Russian imperials in eastern Turkey. Can you update us on your project? Are you done with Central Asia? I love the show and glad you are back producing them. Great work, Dusty. Dusty, you know, thank you. Thank you for the love. Uh, I don't know if everyone has been waiting for pictures or care what projects I'm working on, but <laughs> thank you. Here, here, here's where I'm at, okay? I'm currently finishing up my uh, Central Asian project, which has taken forever, But I just ordered a bunch of Sarbaz from Tiger Miniatures and um, I'm in the middle of painting them. Then I have some Central Asian horsemen uh, to work on and finally finishing up with uh, some terrain and some landscaping. The horsemen I'm going to be doing a a few at a time over the course of the next six months, so I'm not too worried about them. I have enough right now to play a game, Uh, so that'll wrap up my uh, Central Asian project. Um, I have a little mini project I'm going to do before I start my next big project. Uh, the little project is uh, naval, a little naval project. I'm gearing up for uh Turk, many pirates versus Russian gumboats circa 1850 ish. And I have a little bit of a uh, terrain to do and some boats and a few figures. It'll be cool. I'm looking forward to having that on the board. And then, yes, I go to Turkey, Azerbaijan and the Caucasus. Uh Let's see. I got uh, some more. I received some more Persians uh, over the holiday uh, from Black Huster and Germany. Such a great line. The Persians from Black Huster, it's actually the originally the sculpts were Westphalia and they're so nice, just so nice. Um, and they're, they're a joy to paint. I have a bunch of Russian imperial forces, uh, mostly from Perry's, that are sitting in my, in my lead pile, as it were, uh, and they're ready to be painted, assembled. I got some buildings that I'm painting, uh, and I still need to pick up some Turks, but I'm waiting for Perry's to complete their Ottoman Napoleonic set before pulling the trigger and purchasing those. Uh, They have some great uh, infantry. Uh, They put out some cavalry, and I'm waiting on the uh, artillery. Once the artillery drops, uh, then, boom, I'm going to start placing an order and get that in gear, and I'll uh, get all the flash cleaned up and get it all primed. That way I'm ready to just, boom, start going. And now, believe it or not, once I'm done with Asia, I'm done. I'm not doing anything else in Asia. I'm going to be bailing out of Asia. I'm going to go somewhere else. Uh, another theater inside the uh, 1800s. I haven't decided exactly where because I really want to get – I, I, I kind of like to do a project at a time. I actually have – the fact that I have these three projects going makes it kind of like, oh, I hate it because I, when I'm done with a project, I just want to finish a project and move on to another project I don't want to decide on a project before I actually get the project going. I kind of want to just kind of roll in it. Uh, but I am going to be leaving Asian, uh, the Asian stuff behind and go into another another theater. I'm not sure exactly which, if I'm going to go South Africa, if I'm going to go Australia, if I'm going to go Franco-Prussia, if I'm going to go 1848, if I'm going to go to South America, or maybe I might just go traditional and just, you know what, and just bite the bullet and do some Union Confederate. I don't know. And you're like, what? No, I'm serious. I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's probably not going to be that, but you never know what's happening in my melon. So, but anyway, Dusty, I hope that brings you up to date. And thank you for your email. Uh, Next email comes from Barry in Newcastle, Australia, who wrote me. Uh, It says, uh, let's see, Barry writes, Scott, I was disappointed in your last show. It doesn't seem like you know anything about Australia. Next time you should find someone who knows more than you. Uh, I do like the program you presented, but I was disappointed in the Australian episode. I'm not sure if you'll read this on the show, but if you do, it just means you're a hearty bear, Barry. Uh, P.S. I am from Newcastle. I hear you, Barry. I, As I said in the beginning of that episode, I didn't know a lot about Australia, except the pop stuff and what I've heard music and then what I've researched, you know, so I I'm not well-versed in Australia. So I did, I did what I could based on the time constraints I had. And you're right. I should have an expert. And uh, I will have an expert uh, as soon as possible. Uh, also, a hearty bear? I, I hope that's a compliment. <laughs> and my final email uh, for, this, see, uh, for this episode is uh, from the great Yoku, listening in Denver, his email reads, "I am the Great Yoku, and I have just recently been listening to your podcast from my palatial estate in Denver, Colorado, in the shadow of the notorious Pikes Peak." <laughs> okay, is Pikes Peak notorious? I lived out in Colorado, so I, you know, for a little while, I don't remember it being notorious. But you know, that's just me. Anyway, uh, the Great Yoku continues. I am a war gamer also, and I don't believe in painting my figures. I find it a waste of time when I just want to play the game. How do you feel about that? Do I offend you? Would you have me waste my years painting and not playing? The Great Yoku demands a response. By the way, I love the show The Great Yoku. Uh, no, Great Yoku. Uh, that does not offend me. It's just, you know, bro. It's your choice. Yo, I can understand wanting just to play the game. I felt that way when I first started wargaming back in the late uh, '70s. <coughs> I'm old. Uh, and I would drive the guys I played with pretty nuts because I didn't always have all my figures painted. Now, I, I I would rather wait to play until I have everything I need for the game ready. I hope this doesn't across as offensive, but Wargaming to me is like a combination of understanding history and strategy and tactics and painting and building and landscaping. So it's, it's, it's like it's all wrapped up into one banner that... I term wargaming. If you buy the figs, you don't paint them. That's cool. That's cool. But then you're just kind of playing a board game, right? Rather than a war game, if you think about it. And when you get a Monopoly game and they got pieces in it, they're not painted. You working with me? All right. It's just my opinion. That's what I think. Eh, What are you going to do? But uh, great, Yoku. Thank you for the email. Now, uh, like I said, uh, before I get into Ridley Scott's Napoleon, I want to tell you about Shot and Shield which is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, your one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, uh, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and terrain materials, even some miniatures, new items added every week. Dr. Harold's is your new dropship site, and it's growing. See the growth at drharold.myshopify.com. That's D-R-H-A-R-O-L-D.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold Hobby Supply is a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information such as watch along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out in parentheses, shot and shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, shot and shield and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. Thank you for listening to the Shot and Shield podcast, heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and practically every podcast app. And this is my movie review of Ridley Scott's Napoleon. I found the crown of France
1: in the gutter.
2: I picked it up with the tip of my
0: sword and placed it atop my own head. So as you may have heard in the August 23 edition of the Shot and Shield Supercast, I was pretty jacked up when I saw the movie trailer for Ridley Scott's movie Napoleon. The battle scenes in the trailer were excellent, and I'd already observed the fact that the historical accuracy would be placed on the barbecue spit. So when I finally had the opportunity to watch it, well, I I thought I knew what to expect. So, but uh, during this review, I decided... Not to do a step-by-step plot outline or critique each scene. Obviously, the scenes are done in a sort of chronological order. Once again, the the historical accuracy is really it's really tough. But let me do this. First, I'll hit the acting. Then I'll address the portrayal of Napoleon versus historical accuracy thing. And then, finally, uh, the battle sequences. All right? So that's how I'm going to kind of approach this. But uh, it's... <sighs> So look, okay. So first up, I'd like to discuss the acting because I actually had a problem with it. However, let me let me let me do this. Let me focus on the positives. Vanessa Kirby as Josephine is excellent. She did a great job. Uh, she plays the manipulating femme fatale perfectly. Uh, Ian McDiess, one of my favorites, he plays Louis the Eighteenth to perfection. John Hollingwood, who plays Marshall Ney, is good, but a little over the top for me. Now, Rupert Everett played Wellington. And I thought that Everett playing Wellington, he was kind of played him kind of dopey. And if if Wellington was a watered down version of General Melchip from Blackadder 4, you see what I'm saying? So now, Joaquin Phoenix. <sighs> okay. Joaquin Phoenix. And I was afraid of this. Joaquin Phoenix plays Joaquin Phoenix the same way in practically every movie he's been in, which is why the Joker movie was so well-received, because he didn't play himself. He played something different. It was the one movie where Joaquin Phoenix didn't play a part like Joaquin Phoenix. And I get it. There's a lot of actors out there that just play themselves. They only know one way their range is one. Cary Grant played Cary Grant. Errol Flynn played Errol Flynn. John Wayne played John Wayne. But these guys chose roles that wouldn't stretch them out too much. You're not going to see John Wayne playing Hamlet. Not Nothing good comes from that. So Joaquin Phoenix should play roles that suit him. Napoleon is not one. In Napoleon, Joaquin Phoenix plays it more like a cross between himself, the normal Joaquin, and Marlon Brando as a godfather. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. You know, it's like uh, oh, mumbling and stumbling and uh, just drove me nuts. There's a part in the movie when Napoleon is trying to get the king of Australia to join France in the alliance. And I swear if Joaquin Phoenix had said, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, it would have been not out of place because that's the way he's acting. Now, to drive this point home, here is the scene where Napoleon is witnessing the burning of Moscow. Listen and thank Brando. Who did this? They did.
1: No, they did not. Be sensible. Who set these fires? Your majesty. They did. They did. You had to burn his own city to negotiate with me. I didn't think he had the courage.
3: Well,
0: we'll go to St. Petersburg, and I haven't burned that too. Stella! <laughs> you see what I mean? So, that was, that was pretty disappointing. Next, I, I, you know, I wanted to address how Ridley Scott portrayed Napoleon in relation to historical accuracy. Now, from my knowledge of Napoleon... He's considered one of the greatest tacticians in history, right? So it makes total sense to have a movie practically ignore the fact. In my opinion, Ridley Scott got lazy. It's easy to create a movie where there's a lot of action and sex. So Ridley Scott presents Napoleon as a brave soldier, a man of action with BDE, and be easily manipulated by women. It's one thing to make a complicated love story, but it would have been more difficult but make for a better movie had Ridley Scott raised his game and attempted to present Napoleon as a tactical genius who starts to make mistakes until he loses it all. But nope, we, we'll kill it at the box office if we show a lot of blood and our hero being whipped. Do I need warn you of my indiscretions?
3: No, Just where I have been no, madame.
0: now I knew that historical accuracy was going to get mauled so I knew this going in I wanted to see the battle scenes the Don Cossacks coming coming over the the hills and out of the forest after the retreating French the Austrians getting their face punched in by the French. At Austerlitz, the Waterloo squares, and the Battle of the Pyramids. So here we go again. I kind of am disappointed. I mean, the uniforms are spot on, the battlefields were well done, and the action was good. But nothing representing tactical genius is ever was ever there. It was action for sake of action. When the action was over. Well, I felt the same as if The Rock had played Napoleon, uh, the fast and furious with horses type feeling. Now, I'm being hyperbolic when I say that, but I don't, I don't mean that the action was exactly the same, but how I felt when I was done watching it. So when The Rock is trying to find out who's smelling the cooking and laying the smack down, I felt the same way after seeing Rock smack down somebody or some car going through a wall. General, we are discovered. Good.
3: Wait. Nice.
1: Detach. Retreat.
0: Okay, I'm gonna wrap it up. To sum it up, Joaquin Phoenix plays Napoleon as if Joaquin Phoenix was playing Brando. Ridley Scott took a lazy approach to presenting the main character. And the action made me feel let down. I will never get back the time that I spent on this movie. Never. And the money I already lost uh, dealing with it. So it's a zero of five pith helmets. You know what? The zero out of five pith helmets is because I'm angry at the movie. I shouldn't do that. Uh, Really, the uniforms are really, really good. And the scenery, the... The whole scenery was good. I mean, there were some good pieces to the movie. I shouldn't just focus on the negative. It's hard not to because it's so blaringly and in my face. It really does. It lays the smack down across my, my melon like the rock just hit me. And I felt the same way afterwards. So I'll give it a one of five Pith Helmets. I don't know what else to say other than I was really disappointed. And with that said, I would like to have a moment of silence for my patience. Thank you. This is Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think
1: I, too, dream of peace? You don't think I, too, yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no.
0: Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page. At Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. Before I present to you another vintage radio discovery, it is necessary to let you know that Shot and Shield is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, your one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and terrain materials, and even some miniatures, new items added every week. Dr. Harold's is a new drop ship site, and it's growing. See the growth at drharold.myshopify.com dot com. Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. Now, during my three-month job-related retail sabbatical, (laughs) I had a chance to dig around for some more cool vintage radio, and I chanced upon this weird little series from 1935-36 called Port of Call, which is a series of historical vignettes about one port of call inside a 30-minute program i've chosen a few of these to present to you uh in the the coming months and the first one is from 1936 called port of call egypt port sub call Mm
4: the world then, strange, fascinating lands beckon us. Bid us revel in their exotic splendors. Come with us as we head for Ports of Call. Egypt, 7,000-year-old Queen of the Nile, a land of sunlight and endless summer. While Europe still remained in a primitive state, When Greece did not yet exist and Rome was unheard of, the pharaohs of Egypt knew enough about architecture to build pyramid-shaped tombs which have stood inviolate for 6,000 years. It was Egypt who gave us the foundations for astronomy, Egypt that first perfected the art of sculpture and painting, who taught us how to dye cloth, weave linen, and cotton. Truly, this land is a magnificent and lasting monument to the saying, there is nothing new under the sun we enter Egypt by way of Alexandria at the mouth of the Nile, a gay, modern city swarming with people of every race and creed. Taking a side trip from Alexandria to the Rosetta mouth of the Nile, we pass a spot where in 1799 an event took place which was destined to open the magic portal of Egypt's past. On his ill-fated adventure into Egypt, Napoleon prepares to give battle to the Turks. And orders some trenches dug in the soft soil of the Nile Delta. Look, Pierre. What can this be? Here, let me help you. Yeah. <laughs> ah, see. Covered with markings like writing. It looks like Greek. And then there are some little pictures like we have seen on the pyramids. I think Napoleon would wish you to give it to him. Oh, Francois. Hmm? Napoleon is coming toward us now.
3: What are you doing then? While work, you stand idle. General Bonaparte, we, we were digging even as the rest are doing. And I dug up this stone. Pierre here says I should give it to you. Let me look at it. Hmm. You're right to give it to me. Soldiers, this stone has the wisdom of centuries written upon it. Indeed, you did well. Very well. <laughs>
4: Napoleon sent the Rosetta Stone to Champollion, famous Egyptologist, who founded a record of honors bestowed on Cleopatra. They were written in Greek and Egyptian hieroglyphics. Champollion knew ancient Greek. By comparison, he was able to decipher the mysterious hieroglyphics. Thus it is that the world today knows so much of the distant wonder and beauty of Egypt's past. we can go up the Nile to Cairo by railroad, or we can take one of the lazy native boats called Felukas, swan-shaped, delicately built sailing vessels, which might have been used by Cleopatra herself. Slowly, Alexandria passes from view. After many hours on the green, turgid waters of the winding Nile, we reach Cairo. Cairo seems more Turkish than Egyptian, filled with mosques and tombs of the various Caliphs and Cadids. We wander for hours through winding streets packed with every kind of oriental type or visit the native bazaars. If we prefer modern comforts, we go to Shepherd's Hotel where we dance to the latest tunes and eat the finest European food. Only a few miles away at Giza we are transported into the dim past to 4,700 years before Christ when Cheops, pharaoh of Egypt, decided to immortalize his name. I, Cheops, king of kings, make a proclamation. When Osiris, the father of the gods, takes me across the black river of death, I wish to be buried in a tomb befitting a king. I order all my slaves to go to the stone quarries and cut out blocks, each one the size of three elephants. Then I wish them to be dragged across the
3: sands and built into the largest tomb in the world.
4: After 20 years of labor, and with the loss of 3 million lives, the Great Pyramid was completed. Near the Great Pyramid, we can still see traces of the long, low barracks, where miserable slaves sank into exhaustion after a day of toil lifting the huge stone blocks, weighing over 3 tons apiece. Our native guide is anxious to take us through the Great Pyramid. First, we must climb
3: about ten feet to the entrance. See? It is far off the ground to keep the floodwaters from entering. Careful now. The passage is very narrow. It slopes down. You
4: must not bump your head. It's strange. Electric lights in here. It seems almost sacrilegious. Many say that. But no one would like to bump his head. Feel those huge stone blocks. I don't see how they ever got them in place without a derrick. About how many would you say there were in this pyramid? They say there are over two
3: million of them in the Great Pyramid. It is fearfully hot in here. No air at all. The old king did not wish to be disturbed. We are in the room where the king was laid to rest all those centuries ago. See, there is the great stone sarcophagus.
4: Empty. I thought the mummy might still be in there. Alas, centuries ago, thieves broke in and
3: stole all the treasures. They even turned the sarcophagus upside down. The king's body turned to dust
4: and ashes. We're standing in a room 7,000 years old. It doesn't seem possible. It looks ageless. Like Egypt herself,
3: honorable sir.
4: Yes. Egypt herself. Ageless. Near the Great Pyramid, stretched full length on the burning sands, we see the Sphinx looking across the Nile with expressionless, unseeing eyes, endlessly meditating. Whose gigantic portrait is this weird creature, with its lion body and its human head? 4600 BC. Kafre, Pharaoh of Egypt, speaks.
1: I am Khafre, who sits on the right hand of Osiris, God of the Nile. Who was Chaos that he should have a greater monument than Khafre? I command you to build a statue of myself with the body of a lion cut in the solid rock. It shall be the largest in the world, so that even when my sons and their sons have gone, I will be known as Khafre the Mighty.
4: Foolish Khafre, few know now that the Sphinx is your portrait. But hundreds of thousands of us have looked at the Sardonic subtle smile and have wondered what secrets it possesses. Mm. Going still farther up the Nile, we pass the Valley of the Kings, a magical name. Among the rocky cliffs that frown upon the Nile are narrow ravines up which we climb to see the rock hewn tombs of other powerful pharaohs. Whose tomb is this? It is the final resting place of the most remarkable man that Egypt ever produced, Akhnaton, the heretic pharaoh, who actually worshipped but one god. Sacrilege, cried the Egyptian priests of Anubis, Set, Hubastis, Opet, Amon, and all the hundred other gods, the grotesque animal heads, who took their endless toll of bloody sacrifices. Finally, in 1350 B.C., after a turbulent reign, The people demanded that something be done to curb the sacrilege of the gentle Pharaoh Akhnaton. Hotep, the high priest of Anubis, has an audience with Akhnaton.
1: Verily, I say to
4: you, Pharaoh Akhnaton, you have brought down the wrath of the gods on your head. Your
1: empire is falling to pieces. Your people grumble because you have taken their gods away from them. You must give up this mad idea of yours to worship only the sun. Hotep,
4: most noble one, high priest of Anubis, this is my answer. No longer will my people offer blood sacrifices to gods with the head of jackals, cats, lions, and crocodiles. These creatures are animals without souls. Akhenaten, be silent, lest the gods strike you dead. There is but one god, Atan, the son, the giver of life.
1: Be warned, O most noble Akhenaten. Be warned of your people's hatred of you. <sighs> Nefertiti. Nefertiti.
2: Yes, my lord. You called me?
4: How often must I tell you not to call me your lord? You are my wife. We are equals.
2: Oh, it is hard to understand, Dr. You are the Pharaoh. You were allowed many wives, many gods. And yet, you worship but one god, and have married but one wife.
4: I need but one god. I want only one wife.
2: But I have given you no son,
4: It is the will of Otten that we have no son. Nefertati, what will happen to the religion I've tried to give my people? Why was I not born strong like other men? I must die before my work is completed.
2: Oh, do not say that, please. Oh, look. Here comes the husband of our daughter.
4: Welcome to Welcome, Tuknaton. Sanctified one, do not throw yourself at my feet. I'm not a god. You are so strange, Akhenaten. We have been taught that Pharaoh is sacred. And you say, I am not a god. My boy, I have something important to tell you. Yes? When I die, you will be Pharaoh of Egypt.
1: Pharaoh of Egypt? Yes.
4: You are my daughter's husband. I have no son. There is only one thing I demand of you. I shall do anything you wish. Promise me that you will worship only Atum, god of the sun. I swear that I will not forsake the sun. I promise you this, Aton Natan dies, and Tudakhenaten becomes Pharaoh. Hotep, the high priest, comes once more.
1: Pharaoh Tudakhenaten, I have come, as I said, to hear your decision. I do not know what to say, Hotep. You must
4: decide. I made a sacred promise to Akhenaten that I would keep alive the worship of the sun. And what of your people? The barbarians from the east and west are taking your empire from you. Everywhere there is unrest, hatred... The old pharaohs worshipped many gods, and then came Akhenaten with his blasphemous ideas. He was a gentle king. He never tortured his people, never sent them into slavery. Akhenaten's spirit will come back to torture me. Akhenaten's spirit cannot come back. The
1: goddess set has committed him to everlasting labor because he refused to recognize her. Be warned by his fate.
4: Very well. I will give up, Akhenaten. Ah, noble Tutankaten. Your people will rejoice. I am glad. To make my people happy. One other thing you must do. What more do you want? I've betrayed the
1: spirits of the dead. No longer can you be called Tutak Natan in honor of the sun. You shall be called Tutak Amon in honor of the earth god. Amon.
4: It shall be as you wish. From now on, I shall be called Tutak Amon. And such was the beginning of Tutak Amon's reign. The young pharaoh who was destined 32 centuries later to be awakened from his eternal rest when his tomb was discovered by Lord Carnarvon and Howard Carter in 1922 in the Valley of the Kings at Luxor. Century after century flowed along the twisting Nile, which wound past fertile valleys, barren rock-swept deserts haunted by vultures and jackals, magnificent estates of the rich nobles, alabaster temples to hundreds of gods, All the splendor of ancient Egypt. But the empire fell to pieces, and the long, decadent period of degeneration began. Finally, a stronger nation. Barbaric Persia swept over Egypt with its conquering hordes, and she bowed her proud head to a new lord, Cambyses the Persian. But not for long. Cambyses died. Darius became king. Like a bolt of lightning, Alexander the Great, twenty-year-old military genius from Macedonia, laid siege to the world and conquered it. 332 B.C.,
3: Alexander speaks. People of Egypt, I have not set foot on your land as a conqueror, but as a deliverer. You have had the heavy yoke of Persia around your necks. Now you shall be free to worship as you please. I myself have come to the temple of Amon to receive his blessing. Amon, divine one, tell me that I am indeed your son as my mother Olympia said. Tell me that I am divine and immortal. Give me a sign, O divine Armand.
1: Alexander, you have spoken truth. You are
4: my son.
3: Then I, Alexander, by divine right, king of Egypt, son of Armand who found the city, it shall be named Alexandria. When I die, I will be buried here and my descendants shall rule Egypt as long as she endures.
4: And no sooner did Alexander's fever-ridden body breathe its last than his generals savagely divided his empire among themselves and murdered all his children only one wish came true. Ptolemy snatched Alexander's body from the grave and carried it to Egypt, where he buried it in the temple of Ammon. There he founded the dynasty of the Ptolemies, and his last descendant was a woman destined to be even more famous than Alexander himself. Cleopatra, who betrayed her country to the Romans in 30 BC.
2: But do not judge me too severely when you hear those harsh words. At 17, I saw my rightful throne snatched from me by my brother Ptolemy. I was a woman. I could not lead an army. But Julius Caesar, the great Roman, could lead an army. I made him fall in love with me. It was not hard. He was 56. I was 17. He gave me back my throne. I went to Rome with him. Alas, that was my great tragedy. The beginning of my downfall. Rome was the greatest city in the world. And I was queen of one small, weak country. I might have been Caesar's wife had they not murdered him. I had to return to Egypt, alone, unhappy, disappointed. And then I met Mark Antony. I loved him for his bravery. I admired him for his power. Together we might have ruled the world. But Antony was weak for I had thought him strong. And because of a little quarrel with me, he threw away our chances for the world. Octavius Caesar, that pale, thin fellow, won the Battle of Actium. I no longer wanted Egypt. I no longer wanted love. Antony killed himself rather than give me up what was left for me but death. I had no country. I had no honor. And so I died as I had lived.
4: The rule of Rome was Egypt's downfall. Governed by stern military leaders. Taxed mercilessly to support the extravagances of the emperors, it was no wonder that Egypt fell an easy prey to the fanatical Mohammedans. In 639 A.D., Omar conquered Egypt and made it part of his great Ottoman Empire. Under Turkish rule, the condition of the Egyptian people was indescribably wretched. Extravagant sultans and khedives taxed the very necessities of life in order to support their magnificent palaces. After the Sultan Ismail in 1867 sold England a controlling interest in the Suez Canal in order to pay his debts, the British decided to step in. They deposed Ismail and took over the government. Lower Egypt accepted this humane rule with gratitude. But in Upper Egypt, the Sudan, it was a different matter. 1883. Gladstone, Prime Minister of England, has a conference with Queen Victoria.
5: Is there nothing we can do to stop this religious fanatic from stirring up the Sudan?
1: No, Your Majesty. This man calls himself a Mahdi, or prophet of Islam. He has great personal magnetism. People will die for him. He hates England... He will do everything in his power to break our government.
5: Surely we have shown the people of the Sudan that we think only of their good?
1: When a downtrodden people come under the influence of a man like the Mahdi, they're like so many cattle, Your Majesty. He appeals to their emotions. We try to appeal to their good sense.
5: Just last month, we sent 10,000 British soldiers out there in that hot, ungrateful country to teach the Sudanese good sense. What was the result? Utter annihilation. Colonel William Hicks murdered. I am afraid that your policy of good sense is the wrong one for Sudan, Mr.
1: Gladstone. Our only way to overpower the Mahdi is to find an Englishman with the same personal charm, the same power over men, the same understanding.
5: Well, Mr. Gladstone, since you have come to that conclusion at last, whom do you suggest that we
1: send? I think that General Gordon would be the very man. Ah, yes. General Gordon has a brilliant record, I believe. They call him Chinese Gordon on account of his ability to understand the workings of the Chinese mind. Perhaps he might be equally successful with the Egyptians.
5: Very likely, Mr. Latson. I think this Chinese Gordon is the man for the Sudan. You may give an order to have him dispatched to Khartoum immediately with all necessary soldiers and men for an extended campaign. The Mahdi must be defeated for good and all.
4: And so magnetic, brilliant Chinese Gordon begins his last adventure Arriving in the Sudan, he makes his headquarters at Khartoum And gives Muhammad Ali pacifying promises Two months of precious time go by Finally from London comes the answer You sent for me, Gordon Tasha?
3: Yes, Muhammad Ali I have news from my country they will give us Zobare to rule over us as you promised? No. You have broken your word, Gordon Pasha. They do not want Zubair, because he was once a notorious slave hunter. You have broken your word, Gordon Pasha. Do you believe I could do that? You are an Englishman, Gordon Pasha. Yes, and proud of it. I will not have one word said against my country. I can no longer promise you and your garrison any support. In fact, most of the tribes have already gone over to the Mardi. Let them go. You wish, you may go too. Mark my words, Mohammed Ali. England will come to my aid, and you and your Mahdi will be wiped out forever.
4: Gordon is left with a small garrison of men at Khartoum to hold the city against the rebel tribes of the Mahdi. Day by day, his fate grows worse. In vain, he telegraphs for help. London seems to have forgotten gallant Chinese Gordon and his little band of heroes. Three months go by. Four. Five. March arrives with the Nile rising in its annual flood. The Mahdi lays siege to Khartoum. In London, action is finally taken. And a small armed force under Sir Charles Wilson is sent out to Egypt. After desperate fighting, they start up the Nile for Khartoum. Meanwhile, at the fort... The Nile is rising.
3: The fort is gradually sinking into the mud. Sapri.
4: Safri!
1: I cannot come to you, Gordon Pasha. I can no longer
4: stand. We must straighten the walls. They're crumbling to pieces. The modest
1: troops will be able to enter.
4: I cannot come. I cannot.
1: Ah, oh, he's finished, poor wretch. I'm almost alone. Oh, England. England! Where are you? He has entered the fort at last. To arms! To
3: arms! For God and Saint George! Soldiers, go up the stairs! Gordon Pasha will be there. Take him prisoner so that we can drag him before the muddy. Go! Up the stairs! They're coming for me, are they? Well, I'm not afraid to die. I'll go to them. I am here!
4: You there at the foot of the stairs!
3: Take me alive if you can, Gordon Pasher! I take you prisoner. Take me prisoner, eh,
4: Mohammed Ali? Here is my down answer. Down.
3: Kill him. Kill him. Death down. to the Englishman. Down, down with him. Down with him. Oh,
1: God, I tell you I heard. Down with England.
3: God and Saint George.
1: England. England.
4: Was the end of Chinese gold. So Charles Wilson arrived at Khartoum two days late. Not until 1896, 12 years later, did Great Britain defeat Marism and regain the Sudan which she lost with the fall of Khartoum. When Lord Kitchener finally raised the British flag over the residency in Cairo, Egypt was freed at last from religious persecution. Those hundreds of years of oppression, something had happened to the land of the Nile. A certain spirit had been whipped out of her. The old striving for knowledge, the ambition to know the secrets of the universe, the long march toward complete perception of the power of thought, all had disappeared. Today, from their lofty heights, the pyramids look on as another civilization presses forward. The inscrutable image of Khafre the Sphinx stares down upon us as though to say in parting,
3: Farewell. Remember, men come and go. Civilizations rise and fall. Empires are made and destroyed. But no man knows my secret. Egypt is ageless.
4: you to join us again next week in this time as we journey to another of the world's fascinating ports of call.
0: was Port of Call, Egypt, from 1936. Interestingly enough, I am pretty good at recognizing voices, and I I heard uh, several voice actors from one of my favorite radio series called Steve Gibson and the International Secret Police. You've heard me talk about this uh, show 4,000 times because it really is an amazing show. Most of their jobs were just working voice work, doing voice actor stuff, and didn't do much else outside of radio with a few exceptions. Regardless, though, that was called Port of Call, Egypt from 1936. And I have a few others in my back pocket that I'll be presenting you in the next coming months. However, our time comes to a close. And until next time, you've been listening in Milksham, England, Zolikerberg, Switzerland, and Samsung, Turkey. To Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history. A program meant to be heard while you are painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I have been your host, the Grand Duke Scott from the Duchy of Florida, and I'm out. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. 13!